Welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast, where we explore breakthrough innovations for mental illness. I'm Tommy Moore. I'm your host of this podcast, Mind Medicine Australia, which is a charity that is committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. We are supporting the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia by providing educational material like this, as well as events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and supporting clinical research. So in furtherance of this mission, the Mind Medicine Australia podcast aims to facilitate engagement between clinicians, researchers, mental health practitioners, and other leaders in psychedelic-assisted therapies to provide expert opinion, share research results, and ultimately help to educate the public about potential new opportunities in patient treatment. If you wish to support this mission, there are many ways that you can do this. You can join a local chapter group, be amongst the discussion, keep up to date with all information regarding this field. Uh, You can share this podcast, leave a five-star review. That will, of course, help and provide any comments or questions. Also really helps. Uh, And these are all zero-cost ways and simple ways that you can help support the development of psychedelic-assisted therapies. It can also be of financial support, so you can donate directly on mindmedicineaustralia.org and you can also donate to the podcast through Patreon. So all the links will be in the show notes. So thank you for your support and interest in this emerging space. I will also remind you that the information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. All right. Professor Carl Friston is a British theoretical neuroscientist at University College London and a real leading authority on brain imaging. Friston has been awarded with countless different prizes and accomplishments. I won't name them, but there there are many and is considered one of, or if not the most influential neuroscientists of the modern era. And some even compare his theories with Charles Darwin. And actually, according to science.org, he is the most neuro, not the most, you know, the most influential neuroscientist alive. And on Google Scholar, he's been cited almost 300,000 times. He invented statistical parametric mapping, voxel based morphometry, and dynamic causal modeling. That pronunciation, right? And these contributions were motivated by schizophrenia research and uh, theoretical studies of value learning formulated as the disconnection hypothesis of schizophrenia. Friston currently works on models of functional integration in the human brain and the principles that underlie neuronal interactions. His main contribution to theoretical neurobiology is a free energy principle or action and perception of active inference. And we explain all of that throughout this conversation. And I think it's fair to say that Carl is an incredibly intelligent and intellectual neuroscientist. I do my very best to try to explain and paraphrase some of his points in simpler terms um, to help me explain or may help me understand and for you to understand as well. So whether or not you have a background in science or not, I really hope you're, you're able to follow all through this conversation. So what did we chat about? 
we spoke about functional segregation, functional integration, and functional connectivity. I'll explain briefly what this is. So when you get into this conversation, it'll make a little bit more sense. So the brain consists of specialized cortical regions. So cortical region, region just means like outside or on the outside that exchange information between each other and reflect a combination of segregated or local and integrated or distributed processes that define brain function. Functional connectivity is the relationship between different brain networks or regions. So when we measure brain activity through functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI or by other means, we are looking at functional segregation, so local and functional integration, distributed activity to assess what is happening inside of the brain. Carl and I also talk about the brain's predictive model, prediction error, and how to correct prediction error. We, of course, chat about free energy principle and active inference. So inference just means coming to a conclusion about something. We talk about psychopathology, or in other words, is false inference. So when the brain comes to false conclusions about reality. We chat about how psychedelics alter the hierarchical structure and inferences of the brain. We chat about serotonin, interoception, and 5-HT2 agonism, what that means, what changes are made in the brain when, when these receptors are, are active or stimulated. And we finish out this conversation with the brain-mind relationship and self-awareness in understanding the mind. I really hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you. I've learned so much from Carl. I've listened back to this episode a couple of times now and learned something every time I listen to it. He's a true pioneer in the field of neuroscience and philosophy. So to me, that's the perfect combination. I love combining neuroscience and philosophy and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. So I'm going to stop talking and I'll see you back here at the end of the episode. So please welcome Professor Carl Friston. All right, we're rolling. Carl, thank you so much for joining me this morning. My pleasure. Lovely to be here. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm so, so thrilled and honored to be able to host this conversation with you. You've done some incredible work and continue to do some really, really incredible work um, overseas in, at University College London. And you guys seem to be paving the way and really leading the way in the neuroimaging side of things and how we understand the brain and mind through neuroimaging. So you and your colleagues have done some fantastic work over the past many, many decades, really. And perhaps let's start this conversation with how do you describe what you do? Um, well, my day job is an imaging neuroscientist, so uh, a brain scientist with um, the opportunity to look inside the working brain using a, a variety of technologies. Um, started with something called positron emission tomography. Nowadays, most people use functional magnetic resonance imaging. So these are brain scanning machines. The crucial thing is that they, they register brain activity um, 
over time and for something like functional magnetic resonance imaging every few seconds. So that means we can look at the trajectories and the patterns of activation in the brain as they unfold over time. And if we know the kind of things that the subject is looking at or thinking about, we can start to make inferences and understand what's called functional brain anatomy or the functional architecture, the, the distributed processing, the connectivity, um, the way that activity in the brain is coordinated to underwrite our, our percepts, our thoughts, and indeed our, our actions and intentions. Amazing. Yeah. And when it comes to taking a snapshot of the brain and looking at that over time, there's a lot of different things that need to be considered. I mean, brain activity can include the electrical activity of the brain, or you can look at blood flow or distribution uh, across the brain or, or throughout the brain, and also oxygen uptake, which would be a measure of energy expenditure at, I guess, certain locations within the brain. So at what level are these technologies capturing the brain and how can that correlate to the subjective or felt experience? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, that's an excellent distinction. So, so technically, I think what you're doing is you're um, identifying the different kinds of way of looking at the brain. So on the one hand, we have these what's called um, metabolic or hemodynamic measures, which are indirect signatures of brain activation. Uh, that usually, as you know, to rest upon blood flow. So it's very much like sort of turning on the taps locally in a little part of the brain, usually the say the size of your thumbnail, um, and then detecting that. And those that sort of, if you like, signature that reflects the delicate plumbing of the brain in terms of supplying blood and um, metabolites to support neural activity usually unfolds uh, with a timescale of several seconds. So it has exquisite spatial resolution, you know, down to a few millimeters, but rather poor temporal resolution. On the other hand, as you note, there are electromagnetic signals that we can measure. And these usually use sensors outside the head, either MEG centers, sensors looking at the fluctuations in the magnetic fields that are generated by electrical activity in the brain, uh, or directly using EEG, looking at electrical activity. And the key distinction between these kinds of measures is that they, um, they can be measured exquisitely fast, you know, within, within milliseconds. The problem is, of course, because you're sensing the responses outside the brain, to actually identify and infer where the signals are coming from is a slightly more um, delicate problem. So usually put, people put these two sort of modalities together, at least conceptually, and try to get at both the spatial anatomy, the functional anatomy, but also the temporal scheduling and the, um, the synchronization and the coupling between different brain areas at a much faster timescale. So, you know, our brains work on a timescale of milliseconds right down to the level of a, a single brain cell or a neuron. Um, indeed, people understand the dynamics and the um, the fluctuations in a electrical and chemical potentials, you know, to less than a millisecond. And there's, you know, there are lots of really interesting and important dynamics at that level. In terms of thoughts and feelings and perception, it looks as though the sort of the scale of neuronal dynamics that um, is important that either correlates or causes um, sort of changes in our belief states or our perceptual states 
is probably in the order of several hundred milliseconds, say between two and three hundred milliseconds, a quarter of a second, um, and involving large populations of neurons that could span several you know, millimeters or, or fractions of a millimeter. So we're talking about a mesoscopic scale, which actually is happily the kind of scale that current brain imaging is starting to encroach on. Not quite there yet, but certainly one can, under the assumption that the signals are generated by populations of neurons um, that obey certain sort of functional organizational principles, talking to each other very, very quickly, but doing it like a population or a country would speak to another country as opposed to one individual Zooming or telephoning um, another individual. The, you, know, you can start to infer and ask questions about those functional architectures. So how would those architectures be usually conceived? So there's so two basic um, principles that people usually appeal to. The first is the notion that each of these areas or um, collections, ensembles, populations are specialized for a certain perceptual attribute or a certain cognitive process or a certain sort of motor in the sense of moving your, your, your body using muscles or indeed secreting things using your autonomic nervous system. So there's a specialization that is uniquely associated with different parts of the brain. So that's called functional segregation. You, know, you have a segregation of functional specialization. And that was a notion that um, undergirded decades of um, uh, brain mapping since its inception, uh, often referred to in terms of neophrenology or cartography. So you know, the idea being, if you want to understand the territory, the domain, the way, say, a country works, the first thing you do is identify all the key unique um, uh, cities and mountains and the geography, the, uh, the structure of that country, uh, and make a very detailed, as you can, map of what's going on in terms of functional specialization. The other side of the coin is, is the integration between all the cities in the country, all the functionally segregated uh, brain areas. Uh, in the brain. And that integration is important for understanding the message passing, the coordination, the, the nature and the orchestration of distributed responses in the brain that in response to stimuli or that generate the commands to our motor system, our muscles or our autonomic system. Um, so that, that notion of functional integration rests very heavily on the notion of connectivity. Um, and there are all sorts of wonderful and delicate issues uh, that, 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 that offer potential principles for the kind of connectivity that our brains harness in order to, to make sense, sense of the world. Right. So brain imaging is in the game of acquiring measurements that inform our understanding of how the brain passes messages from one part of the brain to another connectivity to then make sense of the world, which is the inference or conclusion part. So there's the action, there's the perception, and then there's the subsequent learning or the making sense of the experience. And of course, the perception and learning is also dependent on past experiences and events and the beliefs that are carried with them. And without even trying to invoke the free energy principle and active inference, I think we've 
already launched ourselves right in here. At least that's how I'm understanding it because in your theory of the free energy principle and active inference, our brains are always reducing reality or predicting reality and filtering out everything else in the earnest attempt to maximize prediction and conserve energy through using information from past events and things like that. I'm trying to link this in with how it can relate to our understanding of mental illness. I can see some similarities to the entropic brain theory. Am I on the right track here? Yeah, no, absolutely. You've covered an enormous amount of ground and theoretical neurobiology and philosophy there. So, so yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so just connecting that observation to what we're talking about in terms of what are the principles that determine the connectivity and the message passing, the, the functional architectures, the, the most popular um, principle or notion at the moment is indeed this notion of predictive processing. Um, uh, formalized in terms of things like the free energy principle and, and active inference. Um, and just to cut to the last response to, 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 to your question uh, or your observations, the inference is important because that's what sort of holds the, um, the space of what could go wrong if you make bad inferences. But we'll come back to that. This is a backtrack and, and just think about, well, what, if it is the case that the brain proactively um, predicts what is going on, then it must be a constructive organ. And of course, he can't know what's going on out there beyond our sensory organs. You know, we have a brain in a skull. All it has access to are signals along particular lines or messages uh, from various sense organs, and it can just generate uh, signals on nerves that activate, say, muscles or, um, or autonomic reflexes. So it's got a problem in terms of making sense of the sensory data and actively generating predictions of movement or interception or um, um, the control of your body on the inside. Um, so to make sense, it's basically got to model. It's very much like a statistician. It's got to infer what's going on out there because it can't see it directly. So you have this notion of a world out there that is hidden from direct observation that now has to be constructed inside. And that construction rests upon something called a generative model. That if the brain had a model of the way the world worked, then it could generate predictions of what would happen uh, if the world was in this particular state. And the idea is that the brain is a generative model um, and that it generates based on exactly as you say on past experience, both your experiences since you and I were born, but also experience of what happened in the last few milliseconds, you know, that we can use all of this information and predict what we think will happen next. If we then compare those predictions with what we're actually sensing, the resulting mismatch or prediction error scores the quality of our predictions. And if we can then change our predictions in order to minimize that prediction error, we'll be back on track in terms of keeping um, or making sense of the world in the sense that we can explain what's all the sensory samples from that world. So if you now have a generative model, um, what kind of architecture and message passing must that model entail? 
And because it's trying to predict a world, it will have the same sort of causal structure as the world itself. And we live in a world that is very dynamic, it's very non-linear. There are lots of contingencies, there are lots of sort of physical laws, there are lots of um, you know, simple things like uh, objects. Objects can uh, be in different places. So knowing where something is doesn't tell you what it is. Um, therefore, that um, requires the Gerontian model, say, to split into two bits and try to infer what something is and where something is. And indeed, that's exactly what you see in the brain, that there's a, a, a pathway or a stream or a part of our brain uh, on, the, um, on the dorsal aspects concerned with manipulation of space and where things are. There's another part of our brain much more concerned with inferring what am I manipulating? What, what am I seeing at the present time? Um, a key aspect beyond this sort of carving nature at its joints in terms of inferring what's going on is also this hierarchical depth that things um, are always contextualized. You know, what you say to me um, at a very fast time scale is composed of phonemes and words at a slower time set scale. There will be sort of um, phrases and sentences at a larger time scale, there will be narratives. So each level of description, as it were, contextualizes a level below. And that is reflected also in the hierarchical structure of our generative models, which translates directly into the hierarchical neuroanatomy um, that the brain features and possesses. So, you know, perhaps the simplest way to think about this is, is like an onion. On the outside, we have all the messages impinging on the surface of the onion, coming in the sensations and going out, the actions are the way that we act upon the world. Um, and then layer after layer after layer is trying to predict the layer towards the surface until you get to the deepest aspects of the onion, the highest levels of the hierarchy, which typically are thought to be concerned with providing representations or constru constructs that endure over long periods of time. So you're gathering information from um, layers more towards the surface that are dealing with fast fluctuations and states of affairs in the world, and then assimilating and accumulating, making sense of the context in which you're operating. So this making sense um, technically is just inference. It's inferring something, you know. So, so all of our conception or um, the, the way that we might think of articulating our explanation for the sensations that we actively sample from the world can be regarded as an abductive inference. It's inferring the best guess that explains all these sensory samples because we don't know what's actually causing them. And I, I sort of focus on, on that sort of um, notion of inference um, it underwrites much of machine learning and artificial consciousness, um, so and artificial intelligence, and also artificial aspirations of people in uh, researching artificial consciousness. Um, um, to the extent that people in machine learning have built sort of you know, statistical machines that, that, that they've attributed to key thinkers whose, whose ideas um, um, uh, we all inherit from, you know, in terms of thinking of the brain like this, people like Helmholtz, for example, in turn inherited from, from Kant. Um, so why is inference so important? Well, if what we are saying is that the brain is an inference machine, literally a fantastic organ, 
an organ that can constructively generate the right fantasies that provide the best explanation for these samples of the sensorium, then it must be the case um, that psychology can be written down as inference. If psychology can be understood as inference, a pathology of psychology or psychopathology must be false inference or aberrant inference. Um, so that's the key link, the, the way of understanding um, people, um, people's sense-making of the world that has gone awry. You know, all, our, all our perception goes awry all the time. It's just the best guess. But there are certain situations where um, people um, can suffer from um, a su sufficiently severe kind of aberrant inference that they acquire a, a diagnosis, whether it's self-imposed or given by uh, um, uh, you know, a, a psychiatrist, um, you know, it's it, probably a question of degree. So I, just to give you some examples of that, you know, I, when I talk about false inference, I, I mean literally the kind of mistakes a statistician would make when analysing data um, or the the newscasters would make when making inferences about the you know the coronavirus epidemic in in, you know, in, in your locale um, you can make two kinds of errors type one error is inferring something um, is not there when it when it is there and that's a you know a beautiful explanation for um, um, agnosia so if you infer something is not there when it is that means you you've missed it you, 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 you know, it's a, a, a false negative. Um, and there are lots of conditions that, that um, manifest in this way, you know, an inability to recognize faces, um, an inability or a loss of sense that you are a person um, or um, you know, a um, dissociative syndrome where, where, where this is not my arm. On the other hand, you can make um, type one errors where you make sort of false positives. You infer that something is there when it's not. And of course, this is exactly what people um, um, imply when they talk about say hallucinations and possibly certain delusions or delusional systems. But you know, you've, the way you've made sense or explained your, um, uh, you explained your sensory samples is by inferring, believing in a sort of, uh, in a Bayesian sense, that, um, that this object or this intentional stance or this um, set of, say, conspiracies is the best explanation for what's going on, even though it's not there. So that's the, that's the sort of key link, really. It's thinking of the brain as a fantastic organ, a statistical organ that does inference. And, there, there, and as a consequence of that construction, um, the abnormalities in psychiatry and in neurology can now be thought of in terms of false inference. And that's important because then you want to understand, well, how can inference go wrong? Yeah, what's the mechanics of false inference? What kind of abnormal connectivity? What kind of disconnectivity? What failures of functional integration, appealing back to these two notions of functional segregation and integration, could possibly explain the kind of false inference that we see um, in our friends and or in our patients if you, if you are if, if you're a doctor or a nurse yeah so just revising that in somewhat simpler or layman's terms the free energy part 
is that the brain revises its predictions so that its belief matches the sensory input. And the inference part is that the brain signals the body or other parts of the brain to act in a way so that the brain or the body or the feeling is in a new state and new sensory input matches the pre-existing belief. So if someone has fallen down the path of a negative self-bias, which we all have or we all feel that we've experienced before and seems to be what a mental illness is birthed as, being a re- repeating negative self-concept, that it is not true or not in reality, but because it's a pre-existing belief, we find things inside of our experience that link up with this belief and so that the confirmation of that negative self-bias is reinforced and is then solidified as that neural network or thought or felt experience, however we want to visualize it. Am I making sense here? No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Leveraging neuroimaging and leveraging all these different data to analyze different brain states, whether it's through pharmacology or different states of being, and we continue to create a map of different states or experience and correlate that to specific electrical activity, connectivity, blood flow, oxygen uptake of different parts of the brain. If from that, we know that the negative self-concept looks like at the level of the brain, how would we then correct that? Or how far are we in our understanding of knowing what a negative self-concept looks like in the brain, if we can actually say that? And if we could say that, how can we go about changing it in order to prevent this self-concept to be reinforced and instead implement or upload a new model of reality for that individual to ultimately heal themselves from it? Yeah, no, brilliant question. And I think that the simplest answer is the to change the strength of the messages that are passed from the lower levels of the hierarchy to the higher levels where you have these self-like constructs, the things that are under right selfhood. Um, and the, the, our relationship um, to the world and how we can act and, and influence that world, both an emotional world, a pro-social world and, and a physical world and also a sort of bodily or interceptive world. So, you know, if it's a case of all of this message passing that's trying to minimize free energy, as, as you nicely reminded me, um, and I think you can just read free energy as the amount of prediction error, you know. So you're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to get the best explanation um, you can just by minimizing your prediction error. So, so you're, uh, mathematically, you can write that down um, as, as a, a variation of free energy. If it's the case that you're, tr- you're sort of trying to change your mind, because you, interestingly, in your question, you 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 reminded me that there's an important axis here. You you, you can minimise a prediction error of free energy in, in one of two ways. You can either change your mind to make your predictions more like what you're sensing, or you can change the world to supply 
sensations they're more like what you're predicting uh, so that you know this, this is a, a really important point which i forgot to mention that you know you, that we are also in charge of the kind of data that we're trying to predict and if you get stuck in a rut literally um where um you you um are always trying to solicit from the world predictable sensations or evidence or cues then you can easily see that if you get into a sort of a negative mindset then you can confirm the fact that you are for example housebound or agoraphobic or depressed and not want very much social contact if this is what you predict yourself to be and you are in a completely optimal way soliciting or acting upon the world to supply that kind of evidence you can see how quickly and easily you can get yourself into a vicious cycle um so the, your your question then is well can we understand the anatomy of that vicious cycle getting stuck um in these particular modes of active inference of inferring the consequences of our actions and then um, um basically those becoming self-fulfilling prophecies how could you disrupt that vicious cycle? Well, it's all in the message passing. So, you know, it, in virtue of the fact that the, 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 the context, so the, so the negative mindset, um, is part of your genetic model, lying, you're lying deep in your hierarchy, center, say, of the onion, um, then what you want to be able to do is to explore different hypotheses and start to ignore certain prediction errors coming from um, lower down in the hierarchy so that you give yourself the opportunity to explore different ways of um, explaining what's going on and if you can find different ways of explaining what's going on then that will prescribe different patterns of activity and behavior that will then solicit different kinds of evidence that will enable you to elude or escape that vicious cycle and that's um, this is now coming much closer to the entropic brain hypothesis that you referred to before, because if you think about it, what, so a simple way of thinking about entropy is the measure of disorder. Um, um, so something that has a, um, um, a very, very low entropy will be something that's very, very cold and just in one state and very, very predictable. Something which has a very, very high entropy will be very disordered, very hot, disorganized. It could be in lots of different states. So you can imagine somebody who has a particular mindset that's got them trapped into um, a particular way of behaving, which usually, um, say, certainly in things like agoraphobia or OCD, uh, obsessional compulsive disorder or, or depression. Uh, would involve a certain poverty of thought and social interaction and motor and motor activity that you 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 um, I for example a simple metaphor here maybe I am the sort of person that elicits uh, antagonistic pro-social responses from other people and you know I am the sort of person therefore that will try to avoid social contact and of course you you the best way to 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 generate cues and evidence that are um uh, that ensure that, that, that those predictions come true is to isolate yourself so you get very stuck so you have a very low entropy representation at high uh, levels of the um the hierarchy 
um, that is uh, reinforced by these um, powerful messages coming from below that are, that are holding you in place. To break that cycle, you have to um, attenuate these ascending prediction errors that are holding you in place and allow you to explore different options and other ways, other styles, other hypotheses for the kind of person I am or the kind of ways that I respond, again, socially, emotionally. Um, but to do that, you have to, I repeat, uh, diminish the influence of these uh, prediction errors that are ascending through the hierarchy into the deeper representations. How can you do that? Well, there are two ways you can do that. Um, you can get control over the way the brain naturally changes the weight of these prediction errors or their influence on higher levels of processing, deep levels of processing. Um, and that the, the psychological um, um, metaphor for that will be attention. So now you're, you, if you can get sort of volitional or some kind of control over your deployment of attention that gates or selects the prediction errors that you're allowing to influence your belief updating at the higher level, that is a potentially very powerful way so just ignoring this and selectively attending to that. So that immediately puts um, sort of non-pharmacological non um, therapeutic interventions um, um, in the class of enabling people to revise or revisit their beliefs, and in particular, um, enabling them to attend in a selective and explicit way to the various sources of evidence. So I'm thinking here of things like mindfulness, where the whole point of mindfulness is, is to maintain a particular attentional set so that you're empowering very, very sensory level, very low level prediction errors at the expense of the higher, the prediction errors higher in, in the hierarchy. Um, you could um, use a sort of slightly more conventional notion of attention in, in things like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, just by attending to, to various, uh, cues from your body or cues from your own behavior just by keeping diaries. So a lot of non-pharmacological therapies are basically about enabling people to, to, um, to have a different attentional set and to thereby change the influence of the message passing, the, um, the, uh, the, the influence of these prediction errors that have held, that hold your beliefs and particularly beliefs about yourself in a particular place. The other side, of course, is drugs. So drugs that get into the brain and do the same thing um, functionally or physiologically in terms of turning a, a gain control on the potency or the influence of these ascending prediction errors in a sufficiently selective way that it doesn't uh, render you um, anesthetized or, or, uh, or um, completely disintegrated and psychotic, but you know, get, getting the right, uh, the right neural populations responsible for propagating and communicating, um, um, say, um, you know, the prediction errors, so that you chemically simulate a change in your attentional set and break that cycle. And this, of course, is where the excitement about psychedelics comes in, because um, it is clearly the case that um, functionally psychedelics, just you know, from their name, have an enormous influence on the level in the hierarchy at which you start to um, 
empower certain prediction errors relative to prediction errors at other levels in the hierarchy. So, you know, the way that I people like me would think about this is that there will be certain um, chemical neurochemical changes that um, emphasize sensory prediction errors. Well, what does that mean? Well, it just means that I've now got to find an explanation for the world that explains all my detailed sensations at a very, very elemental level. So I'm going to become very attentive to the sensorium and to all its sensory aspects, as opposed to um, abstracting away and making inferences about um, um, you know, the emotional context or the narrative of what might happen tomorrow. So I, you know, the drug seems to retune and rebalance the, um, the um, technically what's called precision, um, um, mathematically, um, physiologically, this would be the sort of postsynaptic game of the sensitivity and excitability of particular populations from a sort of neurochemical point of view. It sort of rebalances that and pulls your attention towards the sensorium, towards the you know, sensations. What does that mean? Well, it means you've freed up all the higher levels and they can now become more entropic um, and they can explore different options. So that now you're not constrained just to have this explanation or that explanation, but for a moment, certainly during the duration, say, of a you know, psychedelic experience, you, you've got the opportunity now to, um, um, to bring on board other alternative hypotheses for, you know, for self or relation of self or the kind of person you are um, that may, um, when you start to, um, when, say, the psychedelic effect might wear off, you can now bring these into play and then find other ways of explaining your lived world um, that, 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 that now um, do not feature this sort of vicious cycle. So that's a very sort of simple statistician's view of the two ways of, of, of changing inference. It's basically by, by changing the, um, the, the, the relative influence of different prediction errors. Um, you know, just to make this even simpler for people who um, you know who deal with um, economic or scientific or any sort of of data, we're just talking about estimating the uncertainty associated with any evidence. So if you were doing something like a t-test, it's just the the standard error. Um, if you're uh, selecting which news channel to watch, you will have estimates of the trustworthiness of that of that news. So we estimate uncertainty all the time. So what I'm talking about now is, you know, getting into the neuronal machinery that is responsible for these estimates of uncertainty that control the degree of influence that this particular bit of news or this particular, uh, this particular prediction error has on your high levels of the hierarchy that assimilate all, all of this information. Yeah. So just coming back to mindfulness and meditation, as a tool to empower and harness our understanding of our own level of entropy. When one is told to meditate or be mindful, and of course there's different techniques in that, but if someone is simply open monitoring or is just told to notice whatever there is that comes up in the initial attempt to widen our bandwidth of attention, to begin with, it's very conscious activity. And I guess this could be focused towards particular sensations, whether it's temperature or touch or 
any bodily sensation. But over the course of probably a second to a few seconds, this subconscious activity or bottom-up processing just sort of sparks up as though it came from nowhere. This is how I'm imagining entropy to be experienced. This thought that just comes in from the side and then because we are trying to be mindful or that we are meditating, our attempt is to be able to change or dissolve that thought. And if we are wanting to change or dissolve that thought, you then have to recall that conscious input or that attention and highlight or flag that particular neural pathway or thought or feeling if you're going to access the opportunity to change it. I find that many people don't seem to be empowered to change, which could be because they don't put in the energy to pay attention to where that difficult feeling is arising from. They want to protect themselves from it and then do whatever it takes to prevent it from surfacing. And so to change those thoughts or feelings or emotions associated with a negative self-bias or belief, we need to be able to harness our attention to that spot if we're going to be able to change it. Now looking at psychedelics, I like the analogy that it brings the background forward in that more of this subconscious activity or entropy can be accessed through our conscious input or our conscious attention and then open up the neural circuitry to have the opportunity to change their pathway more easily. Is this the kind of way that, that you're imagining it? Yeah, no, that, that's beautifully put. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this notion of um, getting some control over the pathways that are accessed. You know, sometimes you, people use the notion of greased pathways that you're, you're, um, you're enabling certain routes of information and we've been talking about the information conveyed by prediction errors and newsworthy information that enables you to update your beliefs about going on. So that's exactly right. It's it's getting control over um, the the greasing of or the um, the enabling of or sometimes suppression and attenuation of particular pathways. You know, so it's not the people who say have got themselves stuck in uh, in a particular vicious cycle can't do it they, they they certainly and perhaps they are they are doing it too much that they are greasing that pathway or accentuating the that particular pathway that particular route to this particular um uh, you know, um, high level hypothesis about about the way you're behaving so what you're saying is well um anything that enables you now to in a volitional way in a conscious way um or indeed just you know um perhaps subpersonally, but certainly having the ability just to switch which pathways that you are enabling or, or greasing. That's the key thing. So it doesn't really matter what you're attending to. The very fact that you can control whether you're attending to what's out there, the sensorium, um, trying not to follow, um, uh, say, mind wandering. The very fact that you're now trying to exert some control over this is... Um, would be a prerequisite to um, breaking the pathway that's become so entrenched in terms of you attending to that and enabling that pathway um, um, to the extent that you can now explore other pathways by you know, attenuating that one and thinking uh, and um, redirecting resources, redirecting the sort of these attentional resources um, 
in, in a way that you can now explore other routes of explanation and other constructs you can't. So the way that we update our neural circuitry is through attention. And through this attention or conscious input to then be able to direct or redirect it in a way that we're trying to fix or correct it. But because the brain is trying to conserve energy, and when I think about prediction error, I think that it's because the brain shortcuts thoughts into perceptions and conclusions to conserve energy. And this is why it's so difficult and effortful to alter our inferences as more attention and mental strain is required in order to alter that feeling. So psychedelics, what is our current understanding of how psychedelics work? What's happening to electrical signaling in anatomical structures or regions? And how is this helpful in guiding or changing our beliefs and perceptions towards the reality that we're living in? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I realize it's a big question. (laughs) What's the meaning of life? I'm just wondering if there are any experts who are listening, please forgive me for what I'm about to say. So this is... uh, yeah. So, um, so these drugs. I mean, I, I, the first thing to um, um, to say is that there are, are a, a zoo of um, neurotransmitters in the brain that are responsible for setting this tone, for setting this attention, for setting this excitability, for for doing the greasing. Um, and the, I were talking about sort of. Um, time scales of several hundred milliseconds to seconds to say minutes here. So the ability to completely rewire and reconfigure the connectivity in the brain is afforded by neuromodulatory mechanisms. So mechanisms in the brain that modulate the efficacy of the transfer of say prediction errors or other messages um, just for completeness in, in um, predictive coding accounts of this free energy minimizing process, this sort of this constructive uh, predictive processing. You've got prediction errors that are going up the hierarchy, and then the predictions are coming down the hierarchy. So sometimes we're thinking about neuronal cells or brain cells that are generating prediction errors and passing messages forward up the hierarchy. And other times we're thinking about other kinds of populations that will be generating predictions down to form the predictions at the lower level, which, as you say, are all trying to be minimized the most efficient informationally and thermodynamically and metabolically way possible. So the neuromodulators are key in controlling the volume or the gain of the prediction errors as they're sent up. If you increase the sensitivity of a group of cells generating messages to their inputs, and turning up the gain on those through these neuromodulator mechanisms is going to, going to be the mechanism that we've just been talking about in terms of greasing pathways and getting control of them. So lots of different neuromodulators in the brain uh, and lots of different mechanisms. So if we just focus on the, um, on the neurotransmitter mechanisms, there are lots of different uh, neuromodulators, um, dopamine, um, for example, acetylcholine, um, serotonin, noradrenaline, or epinephrine. Um, so um, these are the classical ascending neuromodulators. So they're not, um, they're not the 
the neurotransmitters that are involved in the actual message pattern itself. These are very special class of neurotransmitters that control the, the, the gain or the quality of those neurotransmitters. Why am I saying that? Well, because most drugs act upon these most psychiatric and most neurological drugs, most drugs that are psycho, um, psychoemetic or psycholytic uh, or you know, just change neurological or psychiatric um, um, expression of neurological or psychiatric symptoms and signs, they act exclusively on one or more of these neuromodulators. These neuromodulators um, seem to have themselves a certain degree of functional specialization. And the reason I'm saying that is that one important neuromodulator is serotonin, also known as 5-HT. That, unlike some of the other ones, for example, dopamine, is found throughout your brain. And in particular, it's, it's found in the parts of your brain that do the, the scene construction. You know, they, you're trying to work out what's going on out there, usually dominated by visual and auditory and other ex-receptive cues. So you know, a third of your brain is basically vision. It constructs scenes in this active way. Um, and these uh, serotonergic receptors, they're everywhere. Um, um, and in virtue of the fact they are everywhere, they're going to have quite pervasive effects. So that tells you immediately that drugs that act on the uh, 5-HT system are going to be quite potent and um, have, have, a, a, you know, a, um, have an effect that could implicate many, many different aspects of your functional brain architectures and your ensuing inference about the world. So there's one story that um, focuses on the role of 5-HT2 um, systems, sorry, the receptors, that 5-HT um, um, uh, or serotonin receptors um, in, in, in the front, of, in the more, um, part, in the parts of the brain that are more towards the front um, involved in emotional behavior and, and um, emotional interceptive inference. And that would be a story about SS, you know, sort of uh, serotonin uh, um, uh, um, reuptake inhibitors and, and the role of these serotonergic drugs in, say, uh, treating affective disorders or depression, for example. That would be one story. But there's another really important story that inherits from the fact that these receptors are also very expressed in, um, or the, the serotonin receptors are very expressed in the back of the brain at the top of the visual hierarchy. So what uh, specifically psychedelics appear to act upon the receptors that um, receive these classical neuro, uh, the serotonergic classical neuromodulators and a particular subtype and a particular subtype that lives predominantly on certain cells that we think we know their role in this message passing under this predictive coding. Um, so this is a gross simplification. So if somebody like Robin or Dave Nutt uh, was <laughs> pulling on their hair, but uh, in terms of the way I understand this, um, um, then the, the, the action of psychedelics is basically to change the, um, the neuromodulatory status of particular cells high in the visual hierarchy. These um, 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 anatomically, they're, they're referred to as sort of deep pyramidal cells, deep, not because they're deep in the hierarchy, but because they're deep in the layers of the cortex. That, that you know, if you think of the, 
the cortex as the surface of the brain. That surface is a, is a sheet, cortical sheet, that itself has little layers, and we're talking about cells that are um, deep in those in those particular layers, but high in the hierarchy. Um, we know that these cells are um, probably the source of these backward predictions, and that they generate um, the current state of affairs, if you like, in order to produce prediction errors at this level. So changing their excitability through this neuromodulatory mechanism, very selective, mediated by 5H, and a particular subtype of serotonin or 5-HT receptors, on the cells in a particular part of this function anatomy, which is the, the part responsible for high-level constructs of a scene construction, um, should therefore have the effect of rebalancing your attention to the visual sensorium as opposed to um, thinking about the sort of visual narratives and trajectories um, that underwrite our behavior and are subsumed into um, putting together all of the, this information in terms of um, from all the other modalities, including in, uh, your interception of gut feelings. So what you might think then is in one explanation for psychedelic experience, which is predominantly a sort of, you know, certainly most manifest you know, on, on sort of conventional vanilla accounts in the visual domain, that you're understanding this um, in terms of a, re a selective rebalancing of this excitability that we're talking about before in terms of greasing pathways that because the, the, the receptors that are particularly targeted by psychedelics live in a particular place in a visual hierarchy, and that their effect is to do this rebalancing of precision or greasing or excitability, um, then the effects will essentially be to draw your attention to the sensory prediction errors which means that you'll be compelled to explain the elemental sensory aspects of what's going on, freed from the constraints of the higher level synthesis. So that you might see um, things that you might have put together as a, you know, an object or indeed a scene and just labeled that and attended to that label and to that scene and to that object. If you don't have, if you're not attending to that level of description, but you're now attending to a much lower level of description in terms of edges and colors and orientations that are all composed um, to provide evidence for an object. But now the object's no longer important because we've dissolved and rendered the entropy of that kind of representation much less relative to the more elemental constructs. Then it will look as if the object is dissolving. It'll be free from its constraints, and you will be um, attending to, engaged by, compelled to um, um, explain much more elemental features, simple patterns, geometric patterns, but don't now are not necessarily internally coherent from the point of view of a very high level representation. So all the normal constraints that all parts of an object will move together uh, are just not there anymore. They've been dissolved by the particular action of, of psychedelics. So you're free to experience uh, all the different attributes of the object completely um, un untethered from each other because it's no longer an object. It's a whole set of elemental features. 
uh, and indeed that notion would um, be extended to um, different modalities and indeed the active domain. So you're, there is no reason you could experience uh, synesthetic-like uh, properties. You could start to see, see um, sounds or hear colors, um, that you're, um, all the normal rules that would normally be brought to the table to, to cohere and provide a unitary and simple explanation of all of these sources of information are no longer there. You don't have to perceive the world like that. You can perceive it in bits and it can be disjointed and disorganized and sometimes very beautiful, but in a disaggregated and an incoherent way. Um, and in a sense that, that comes back to this entropic notion that you know, the ability to dissolve uh, and to free our perceptual synthesis from the normal constraints um, underwrites the ability now to discover other high level, say objects such, such as self um, uh, constructs. You know, so if we can dissolve them temporarily and then rebuild other ones, in order enabling us to um, you know, explain uh, to explain the sensorium in terms of a different kind of object, and of course, the kind of objects that we're um, most concerned about in um, in um, you know, in this context would be you know, self as object, or indeed self, self, self as subject. Does that make, does that make sense? Are you trying to tie together the chemistry with it? Yeah. Yes. Yes. No. Absolutely. I was speaking with David Nutt a couple of months ago now, and he was talking about how it affects our visual system and that during the psychedelic state, the visual sensory information that we're getting is actually, I don't want to say more real, but unfiltered. Using that same kind of analogy, if we're skipping that rendering process that our brain is doing when it gets that information and turns it into an object or, or seeing, if you break away the rendering process of our brain turning the sensory information into that usual visual objects of the experience and then creates that sense of time and space and that I, the self, am observing the object that is over there, psychedelics dissolve this distinction or prevent the inference from taking place. And so to break away from that is to then have a kind of emergence of subject and object. The visual system is, of course, only one system, but if we put that into a thought, okay, and so if we imagine that when or as the thought is rendered, adapted, and taken up by the self, the self then puts itself in the position that it's the self that's doing the thinking and that there would be the inference, I guess that would be the inference aspect of a thought. So before it is rendered or any inference of that thought has been had, then there's this kind of dissociative effect. So there's distinction between the thought and the emotion or feeling attached to it. So in that case, the emotional feeling is that the inference, the, the conclusion about making sense of the thought. So therefore, the thought can be seen clearly because the psychedelic state allows the individual to break away from any conclusions or inferences that they've had about the nature of that thought. Putting that back into the imagery of the brain or imagining thoughts as a neural network, instead of this neuron sending the signal to that neuron and 
the subsequent experience is felt, we cut through the middle, then we have access to the thought before it's perceived. Well, we'll not perceive the thoughts definitely perceived, but before we make conclusions about the meaning of that thought. I hope I'm putting this in the right format. And so to be able to break away from that finished product gives power to the individual to then reform what that finished product will eventually look like. Obviously, we can't do that with precision when it comes to our visual system because that's just going to revert back to normal working vision in some sense. We, we may have more sensitivity uh, of our visual system after a psychedelic state, but in the context of a thought or, or negative self-bias, we're able to see that thought with more clarity. It just enlightens or gives insight to the individual to experience that the self is the one that's doing that rendering process and that rendering is plastic. Therefore, gives power to the person to be able to change that particular thought. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was expressed extremely well, yeah. Empowering your internal rendering. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Now, to finish off this conversation... I seem to be biased towards neuroscience when exploring psychedelics and mental illness, though I do know that there is obviously distinction between psychology and neuroscience. Cognitive neuroscience is, is trying to bring those two together, but we are slowly bringing these two together through various methods and technologies that you've worked very closely with. And I know the brain has different states and those different states can correlate with different psychological experiences. Considering you are a theoretical neuroscientist, I want to know, are we drawing the line between brain and mind? What is your distinction between these two? Um, I, I, I think you're right. You know, the aspirations of um, the theoretical biology which we pursue are exactly to try to find the mappings between brain and mind. Um, and I think this inference perspective enables you to blur that line, um, or at least um, have a calculus that celebrates its dual aspect or the dual aspect of mind versus brain. And it does so because there is a distinction between the beliefs um, formally specified, so I'm, I'm talking about sort of Bayesian beliefs or probabilistic beliefs, so they're not necessarily propositional beliefs. Um, so a thermostat can have beliefs or a virus can have beliefs, um, but there is still a, um, a formal distinction between the beliefs and the neuronal encoding of those beliefs. So the, or the neural encoding means the sort of neurophysiology, but the belief updating attached to, to those neuronal dynamics and neurophysiology would be the psychology, as it were, and that would be the mindful aspect. So the belief updating that is entailed by the message passing that we've been talking about, I think, for me, is the mind part. Um, so for me, the, the, you know, there is no hard problem um, you know, in the David Chalmers sense. It, it's just a question of understanding the relationship between the belief space and belief updating and movements in the belief space. And I mean, it's very literally, you can write this down mathematically in terms of statistical manifolds um, and basing belief updating and how that is subtended or maps onto 
the neuronal processes such as neuromodulation we've been talking about and some beautiful relationships so for example the action of psychedelics in controlling the precision or the excitability in that rendering process uh, corresponds to the measurement of distance in the belief space so things become very very close together when they're very precise and they can become very far apart when they have a very high entropy or very imprecise for example mathematically and we use that um, technically to optimize um, rendering and and, and, and and inference and the like um, so yeah you're absolutely right. the, 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 you know if you meant by is the line getting closer is the mind getting closer to the brain absolutely they're they are in juxtaposition and there's a very clear mapping between the two if you understand the neuronal processes that actually mediate or instantiate or realize belief updating but here's the big point which is in your question which is actually and also your lovely summary about your know, self um, and um the the hypothesis that it is me doing the looking and it is me doing the rendering so that that you know that i think speaks to um self-awareness uh, when it comes to understanding consciousness and mindful you know not mindfulness but the mind um so there is the, you know for certain systems which are not thermostats and not viruses but something much more like you and me there will be a sufficiently sophisticated belief space a generative model that includes a hypothesis that it's me doing all this it's inference i don't need it you know i can be a virus i don't need to have a selfhood but at some level of sophistication and complexity it may well be that the hypothesis i am a thing i am a self um, provides exactly the right uh, context in which to make sense of all the other aspects of selfhood and all the other elemental um, processes the rendering the inference the uh, scene construction um so um so that 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 sort of putting together mind and brain um creates a question now um if self-awareness rests upon the notion of selfhood under what conditions might um the self um um uh, be dissolved and of course this is you know an, another really interesting metaphor for the action of some drugs or indeed um some psychiatric conditions such as depersonalization or the, the kind of sensations you get with a delusional mood in a, in a sort of pre a pro drama to a psychotic experience that i'm no longer a self um that i am not me um and you know one can easily see though what's the alternative to me not being a, you know me well i'm just part of the universe i mean think about sort of freud oceanic and you know and and some of the characteristic alternative hypotheses well if i'm not my me then i must be just part of a universe and there's just a oneness there an integration there so i think there's some really interesting if you just unpack the implicit in your question the idea that self is just a fantasy or a hypothesis used to explain our sensed world then it leads to the very interesting question well, what's the alternative hypothesis well first of all I'm, there isn't a self and i'm just at one with the universe but there are other interesting hypotheses or perhaps i'm a different kind of self perhaps i'm not depressed or perhaps i'm um, you know, thinking in terms of end of life care, I'm not that dying kind of dying person. I'm this kind of celebrating end of life. 
know, so having different kinds of cells as alternative hypotheses um, is the gift you get when you can do that cutting of the pathways, you know, using things like psychedelics or possibly um, um, be able to do your own cutting, your own redeployment of, of, of attention through things like mindfulness training, training and the like. Filtering, you, you, that's another lovely word you brought in. So, you know, there are ways of, in psychology of um, understanding um, um, attention as attentional filtering, sort of broad bent theories. So when Dave talks about filtered versus unfiltered, he is talking exactly about the kinds of filtering that we um, implicitly apply when we attenuate or augment certain sort of sources of information um, that are coming to revise our beliefs and ultimately beliefs that uh, about the self who's doing all of this belief updating. Yeah, I mean, when I think of the mind and brain, the words themselves, mind and brain, are reductionist and words are always a reductionist tool and we need to accept that. For example, I say the word mind and for one person it might mean God, to another it might mean consciousness or awareness. We're going to use these all these words interchangeably, then the brain is the anatomical structure and the mind is the psychological part or what is experiencing what the brain is giving it in some sense. The way I can see it is that the brain is a mediator of the mind because, you know, so much of our brain is that subconscious activity. Some parts are telling our heart to beat. Some are telling us to digest food. And obviously we don't have or necessarily have a whole lot of conscious awareness or input with that. So then that is more brain than it is mind, but then there's parts of us that the mind can direct its attention or, or hover our attention over and become aware of these different parts. So then maybe that's the level of self that we exist, is that we are this hovering and timeless and spaceless entity that is just receiving the information wherever it wants to receive the information from. You know, for example, I say, feel your right hand thumb and you can hover awareness over that. Or I say, feel your heartbeat and you can hover your awareness over that. And then there's a level of yourself or the identity of yourself with the mind or identity with the body. And this is all getting very philosophical, but nonetheless fascinating to discuss. And I do think that all of this neuroscience and neuroimaging with all the work of excellent scientists and researchers and people working all around the world using psychedelics to be able to research this, to be able to help us understand what the brain is and what the mind is, will help us better understand what it objectively means to live the best life that we possibly can. Now, we are coming to a close on this conversation. So before we do finish this, if anyone is wanting to reach out to you, other than exploring the vast amount of research and scientific articles that people can go through, is there any other ways that people can access your mind in the format of media or other means? <laughs> um, 
Probably not, other than the very enjoyable podcast. I'm afraid I don't have a, a social media presence. I haven't even got a, um, a, a, an iPhone at the moment. Um, but I do have a website. Uh, so that's that's, that's, that's probably on. why you're doing so well. I think phone and technology is taking us away from the things that we often need to be doing. But Carl, thank you so much for your time and energy this morning coming towards my bedtime in Australia now but I really really appreciate you giving us the time and sharing all of this knowledge and it's just so exciting in science and psychiatry now and part of that is what you've brought to the table over the past number of decades and and I appreciate you and all the work that you have done and continue to do so once again thank you and I'm sure I will eventually meet you at some point. My pleasure. I look forward to that. Well, it's um, fair to say my brain and mind feel exhausted after absorbing all of the information and discussing all of the information with Carl. I cannot thank you enough if if you're still here. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for your interest and support in mental health and psychedelic therapy. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, make sure you leave a review, whether it's a five-star review or leaving comments or questions, or even if you jump onto our Instagram and, and reach out, it'd be awesome just to get some feedback from you all. Um, if you have any recommendations for any guest I should have on the podcast, please let me know. You're welcome to reach out to my email, which is tommy at mindmedicineaustralia.org usually share my email but if you are all the way to the end of this episode then you deserve to to reach out and give me some recommendations or provide any feedback which would be amazing with all of that said thank you once again and i'll see you here for the next one